Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks the government should just use Facebook to do the 2020 census. What could possibly go wrong? But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Just to be clear, I do not want Facebook to do the 2020 census. Today in the red chair is Mark Penn, a former pollster and Democratic political strategist, but that's not, he's very much more important than that. In 2007, he wrote the best-selling book called Microtrends, The Small Forces Behind Tomorrow's Big Changes. And now 11 years later, he has a sequel called Microtrends Squared. He's also worked as a strategic advisor to Bill Gates and Microsoft, starting when the company was sued by the U.S. government many years ago. And he's done tons of things. And now he's working with Steve Ballmer on a bunch of initiatives around... Around digital marketing. Digital marketing, exactly. Mark, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. So let's get let's get people familiar with your background. We have a we don't have just a techie audience. We actually have a bigger uh, audience than you'd imagine, an increasingly political one. Um, and we try to bring lots of different people in. Um, so why don't we talk about your background? You started off as a political consultant originally. Well, no. originally uh, I had interest in polling. Right. Right. My my first poll was age thirteen, but uh-huh. uh, what was it? <laughs> my, it was uh, race relations, actually, in my uh, Horace, in in my school. You went to Horace Greeley. I went to Horace Mann uh, Horace school, Mansard. and I I saw that there was a poll done by CBS, and I said, well, let's see what uh, what polls are all about. Mm-hmm. And so I got became fascinated in what do people really think, mm-hmm. right? And kind of learning it through these polls and asking the right questions. Well, asking the right questions and then analyzing it. I mean, I think the biggest problem with polls today is they're not then I analyzed well mm-hmm. um, and took that basic interest. And well, I went to law school and was going to be an antitrust lawyer, uh, me and a, a friend of mine uh, from school, Doug Schoen, we instead created a political polling company that we did for, oh, 30 some odd years, diversifying it out to corporate uh, before we, uh, before I started to do some other stuff. So you, you were going to be an antitrust lawyer. I'm going to go back to that. Why? <laughs> what was the... <laughs> well, I loved economics, right, right. which is like polling, and I loved law because... And, you know, I thought law was was righting wrongs, and then it seemed more like doing big commercial transactions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the kind of excitement of bringing polls and ads to politics at the time, it was kind of bringing science or money ball to, to politics that didn't really exist in the 70s. No, it didn't. No, I mean, it didn't. You so, know, so I had to your... build my first computer in a kit program and an assembler wow. so that we had the first overnight polling. Wow. So that, so you were doing that in the 70s? In yes. The 70s. So Late what was 70s. wrong with polling at the time? That was just Gallup, right? They well, there was no people. polling. There was just, they call people on the phone, right? Uh, no, they visited people door to door. Right. When right. we did phone polling, it was controversial. Uh-huh. Today, when you do Internet polling is controversial. All right. So you started off. What was the state of polling when you started off? Well, right then, remember, politics was changing from being organization-based politics Mm -hmm. to what you call media-based politics. Mm -hmm. And so the need for polling became much greater because people had to understand where the ads working, what was happening with the campaign. And then because you could do phones by uh, polls by phone, you could for the first time have an affordable ability to understand how your campaign was working, what you should do, mm-hmm. how to test ads. And we started pretty much the first campaign was the 1977 mayoral campaign with Ed Koch, oh, wow. where he started off with 6% and nobody expected he was going to win. 
Right. And what, what did you do for him? What was your... Uh, we helped, you know, at that, at that time with the media consultant, David Garth, we helped develop the basic, relatively counterintuitive centrist strategy that he ran, right. which was to be a lot more fiscally responsible, then to kind of both take the messaging and, and create almost a daily polling operation, the first of its kind, where we could understand how the ads were working and, and eventually... And the reaction, win. the immediate reaction. The reaction and how to change them, because mm -hmm. political ads you could change overnight. Right. I think Pat Cadell was doing some of that, too. There was a whole bunch of people in this Yes. Concept. He was kind of our, our... In those days, he was our idol. Right. He was In terms of doing that, if I remember. So I actually worked for him for a summer doing door-to-door, -door, actually, which was horrible. <laughs> exactly. It was a horrible job. No, at actually. that time, only like the Rockefellers could afford polling. Right, right. Exactly. So you, so you got into this idea of polling, which was done uh, so that you could get instant results and get tell people what, how to shift their message subtly or say things or this was working and this wasn't working, essentially. Well, and also so you could understand, uh, you know, opinion. I think I think our biggest polling assignment was the 96 presidential race, and mm -hmm. out of that came soccer moms. Mm -hmm. And so that was about shifting Democrats from basically going after downscale manufacturing workers to working women who were leaving their kids and for whom really there'd been almost no policy or politics mm -hmm. up until that point. So you started doing polling and then moved to consulting. Well, polling, we, we broadened it out into corporate work. Mm -hmm. And so people had a full-time job 365 days a year, every year. Mm -hmm. uh, and, we, and we grew the firm. Microsoft was probably one of my biggest assignments. I didn't become an antitrust lawyer, but then I worked on big antitrust yeah. cases, yeah. understanding the messaging and the polling and so the politics. So talk about that case, because I covered that for the Washington Post. I was <clears throat> well, it's very interesting because compared to, say, Facebook today, mm -hmm. we'll get to that. Microsoft took the position, hey, freedom to innovate. We, were, right. we really didn't do anything wrong right. here. And so I think they strenuously advocated on behalf of the company uh, I did a, a very unique ad that I wound up writing and directing with Bill Gates in mm -hmm. a sweater uh, when the ruling came down to break up the company. But basically, we had very strong messaging and we lost every single ruling. Because? Because the judge, it turned out, was biased. Right. Okay. And then eventually it was discovered that the judge was biased. He was because he gave a, an interview to Ken Aletta, mm -hmm. which he revealed his bias. He was mm -hmm. thrown off the case. And then we got a reasonable judge and compromises uh, occurred. And the company then went on to rebuilding its its image from mm -hmm. that, that those problems. But talk about that, because I, as I recall, it, there was a lot of mess ups by Microsoft in that particular thing. I was just we were looking I was looking at Bill's um, when he went to Congress or when he came to The Washington Post. I remember him coming um, and really not modulating his message in any way. You know, he, he was <laughs> arrogant was sort of a kind way of putting it. Well, I think you have to understand in those days, Microsoft had no Washington office. They did not. Remember, he said, there's someone up in Rockville I think I hired. No, there's like, no, no lab. Fail up in Rockville. Look, they did their business, quite mm -hmm. removed from they uh, did. He the, had that attitude. the political complex, you know. When, when I came into it, Steve Ballmer had said to heck with Janet Reno. Mm -hmm. Um... It's not uh, quite you, what you know, said, you actually, you hear Bill Gates today, and he's just incredibly schooled on the issues and the mm -hmm. message. And, and, they say, and in those days, he was so involved in, hey, what the next version of Windows was going to be. He was a different person. Mm -hmm. And so he got an education. I think both of them through the process got an education of working with Washington mm -hmm. that the company never forgot. And then became a model, hey, other companies tried to get ahead of it. I think you saw Facebook caught somewhat behind, although they have a pretty extensive 
extensive Washington operation. Right. So you so you worked on the trial. Um, what impact did that have on Washington and tech at the time? Because that was a really a moment. That was a moment where where they got they got attacked for the first time. Well, it, it, it was a big moment. Although we, half of tech was cheering, most of tech was cheering. Uh, yeah, because in fact, when I came, I did a I did a, a video for Microsoft and said we're going to test against this video, and the video depicted Microsoft as a shark, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. swallowing up everything, and right. so so their image was as kind of an aggressive monopolist. Right. And. Uh, you know, I, I think that it had an impact internally in the company. Uh, I think market-wise, probably not so much uh, of an impact over time. I think the the regulatory element of it, I think people learned that it... it I'm not quite sure that Washington learned much of anything mm-hmm. out of that case because right. ultimately not a lot really happened other than, you know, restrictions on the browser. Right. And Microsoft, you know was right that other competitors would, would come into the marketplace and, mm-hmm. and do very well at other services. So so at the end of the day, it then, I think, didn't really change stuff, it right? It didn't. It didn't, 100%. You know, but it was a big deal at the time. Mm-hmm. And the company was almost broken up. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it was much better that it wasn't. I didn't think that would have been the right conclusion for what right. happened there. Right, So you continued you working with them, but you also got into politics, obviously. You're famous. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, no, Steve, Steve and Bill said they liked the techniques that we used around the trial. So they said, hey, apply it to our products. So, mm-hmm. so for many years... Later on, I would go into Microsoft and become chief strategy officer and, and head of their advertising. Uh, but but during those years, then really the I, I did politics in a lot of international countries, and and then got hired by Clinton after the, the. It was actually just before Microsoft. I was hired by Clinton for the '96 presidential race, mm-hmm. and then uh, every week would hold a strategy meeting with the president and the top staff to review polling numbers, policy options, communications options, to kind of bring the White House together once a week. The president said he liked the meetings so much from the campaign, he said, just keep going. Mm-hmm. And every time I thought that the meetings would be done with, mm-hmm. we'd have like an impeachment crisis. Right. That oh, would yeah, then, that. That would then put <laughs> us back. we have an impeachment crisis. You know, we came in for happens. speech prep one day and wow, yeah. you know, yeah. God knows what's going on. Right. And, uh, and we got thrown into campaign, campaign footing. But, but all the time, you know, having a good understanding of what was happening in public opinion and how messaging was, was working uh, really, I think, helped the president make decisions about how to communicate and how to enact policies that would move his agenda forward. Well, some say that's not a good thing, that, that, that was, <clears throat> well, all this baked stuff <laughs> is problematic. No, no, because I think people are confused about that. I think mm-hmm. that, that having a really understanding of what you can do and how you can do it and how you can further what you really believe in. These were incredibly productive years. Look, I came on after the 94 elections, and and therefore he had lost both houses of Congress, but we still got balanced budget, welfare reform, a tremendous economic uh, progress, crime bill, incredible level of accomplishment, right, by, by coming to, through a, restoring a centrist position to the administration. So, so a lot got done, and a lot got done with the, with I think, helping inform the leaders that, that they could find solutions and that they would make compromises. I think people would argue with you on the crime bill, but and they still do. I mean, today it's... They do, but, you know, they didn't argue at the time. 
crime. No. And if you look at uh, if you look at crime, and the, and the and the highs that it was when that crime bill was passed, and the lows that it is now, hey, it might be the right time to do the next level of reform that would look quite differently. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that that yeah. was wrong for the time. So you shifted, and you were still working for Microsoft at this time, or or not, or just uh, yeah. Well, at that, at that yeah. point, although really, that's I was pretty much. Uh, those six years, pretty much day in and day out, other than maybe some, some of the Microsoft work on the case, pretty much absorbed in, in the administration and what was happening, even though, uh, you know, unofficially I was there every day. So talk about what it was like then to be in politics. We're going we're to fast forward to today later, but the, the, the what was the, it was basically you polled issues, then you moved things and you shifted. It was a slower pace. Well, it, it wasn't a slower pace in the, in the sense that, you know, we did polls overnight. We were able to move ads at a day or two. Mm -hmm. uh, so people, I think, think that well, well, today suddenly dramatically. It by was that time, though. by that time, it was really fast moving. Even if uh, you know, you know, cable twenty four hour news was sort of just just starting, just getting going there. You know, Fox News just kind of kicked off around the same time as as Monica Lewinsky. So, uh, but it it, it was. Pretty fast moving, pretty pretty intense uh, in in terms of the system because we could be for the first time do things overnight. We could meet that kind of kind of demanding schedule uh, of the media and 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 really though it was it was an incredibly fascinating time uh, to to kind of see how the communications and the policies would come together to to see the country in fact come mm -hmm. together around a president something we just have not had right. in the last two decades right absolutely so so you had written your book a little bit after this correct your first the first version of this book yeah well the first version came in in two thousand seven right I would say again back in in ninety six I kind of developed a lot of the techniques of polling a combination of lifestyles with personality, with issues, mm -hmm. and kind of understanding the mix of those, which which resulted in, in I think, the emphasis on soccer moms. But in 2007, I said, well, look, let's take a look at how the country is now, is now changing. Let's look at the smaller trends under the surface that people aren't seeing. And I think the 2007 book was extremely optimistic about a world of choice. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I refer to it that, hey, we had the Ford economy, which was any color you want as long as it's black, mm -hmm. which meant that people thought that mass production would really drive down the prices of things. Right. To the Starbucks economy then, hey, 155 different varieties of, of something of a commodity like coffee. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, uh, and so now I think we're in the Uber economy where you have infinite you know, choice here, both in terms of what you want. So I, I think observing that those things then resulted in the smaller trends, whether it was whether it was internet dating, whether it was the the change in, in immigrant population, whether it was uh, whether it was what was happening with with marriage and lifestyles, or or whether it was happening in, in economics, was a way of understanding. I think a decade of change we were going to have, as I said, is much more optimistic than I think the new book. Yeah. So your point of the, of the old book was to do what to say. Uh, was to say the that you, you, you didn't, the, the thesis of this book. And uh, the old book. The old book. Uh, yes, no, the thesis of the old book was very much that we now had a world that was being differentiated by a new level of choices. Mm -hmm. that, that is, technology was, was evolving at the same time people desired to be different from one another. And that that was creating kind of a new world of choice, whether it was politics or culture or religion. There was a new religion on, on every street corner mm -hmm. that you were beginning to see society differentiate and that you couldn't understand society 
very much because if you just look for a couple of big trends, it didn't seem to make sense. Which used to be the case. Right. But, but if you understand for every trend, there's a counter trend. Mm -hmm. You understand that people are being pulled in one direction. And then also there's another group pulling society in a different direction at the very same time. And that's why it looks so impossible to figure out. Right. And so you wrote this book, and which got a lot of attention, and then you moved on to the campaign, the the, uh, yes. the Clinton campaign. <laughs> We've done to the, that, the 2008 so if you campaign. So we were armed with this idea, what ha what went wrong there? Um, I don't think the two were much related. The first Clinton campaign. Yes. Clinton. Now, in the, in the 2008 campaign, that from day one was really that, that Barack Obama represented a serious challenge to her. He had, uh, you know, the support of a lot of those of the media, a good fundraising op apparatus. He represented the first African-American president, uh, you know, and, and I think all of those things, I think, was from day one a challenge. And that campaign, you know, the biggest thing I think in retrospect was I, I did something called the 3 a.m. ad, but I did it in April. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to do that in November. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we would have had to have been uh, a lot sharper about drawing the distinctions between uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, I think, to win that race and to win it early on. As I always say, you have to stop a phenomenon early on. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I worked with Microsoft, uh, I did a big campaign against Linux that was yeah. very successful, mm -hmm. right? And we didn't really do a campaign to block Barack Obama. And I think people failed to do a campaign uh, against Trump. Trump was equally like Barack Obama, believe it, a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. That once they get to a certain point, boy, they're impossible to stop. And also a big stop. trend, not a micro trend, I mean, <clears throat> a macro trend. Really, well, right? yes, but but he is a collection of micro trends that put him over the top. All right, we'll get to him in a minute. But but Barack Obama was also a macro trend of hope, of change, of yeah. He was, I think, a, a phenomenon where he was able to put together a coalition of the both African American community and you know progressive Democrats. And he was the first person who could put together that coalition. And we pretty much did win the Latino vote, the working class vote. We did, we did very well with, with women. Uh, and, but that constituency was really like 49.7%. I mean, really, Barack Obama won just on the strength of actually the caucuses. Uh, mm -hmm. She won the primaries. Right. All right. But yet she did not win. Um, so you went off after the election, uh, where she, where, after she lost the nomination, obviously, um, to go back to Microsoft. And well, uh, actually, then I was uh, CEO of Burson Marsteller. Right, right. Okay, so we had taken that. the polling company, become part of WPP. They'd asked me to run Burson, Burson Marsteller. I was CEO of Burson Marsteller yeah. for uh, uh, four or five years. Uh, then I went off to Microsoft, originally to do special projects. And Why was, didn't you stay at Burson? Um, well, I had pretty much restored Burson to, after five years of decline, when I took it over, then we had three or four years of, you know, tremendous growth. We tripled uh, the uh, the bottom line. We won kind of the top agency of the year awards. And at WPP, there just wasn't a path that was being built mm -hmm. uh, for a leadership team. Something which I got for a which CEO I think the, opening right now. Well, they they do now, but <laughs> and the reason why they they have an opening is that they they weren't building a leadership, leadership structure. structure yeah, so that's that was actually the reason that I. Yeah. Uh, called up my best client and said, hey, I could maybe try to solve some of your difficult problems in tech. Right. And I started off actually uh, working on Bing mm -hmm. when I did the, <laughs> the fairly infamous Scroogle campaign. Yes, talk about Scroogle. <laughs> so, I think I wrote about Scroogle. Scroogle was a 
was a phenomenon. From the, uh-huh. we we put out, we did this ad, and where I would get two hundred fifty thousand people a day to the website uh-huh. as a joke. One day, yeah, we said, well, let's put out do some Scroogled merchandise. Right. Four hundred fifty thousand people came in the first thirty six hours, right? And what that really was about was the appetite for knowledge and competition about privacy. Mm-hmm. She's the first campaign to ever say, look, I know Bing is free to mm-hmm. you. I know Google is free to you. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. Well, one difference is privacy. Mm-hmm. And so nobody knew that Google was scanning the mail, looking through the text, mm-hmm. using that information to construct ads. Yeah, you really <laughs> stopped them there, Mark. <laughs> they, well, the, the truth of the matter is, and, and, and Satya would later, yeah. would later say that nothing worried the people at Google there was nothing that Microsoft did except that campaign. Struggled, yeah. They didn't like it. I recall they didn't like it. But, but you were you were you were super aggressive. You were you were. Is that correct? You were Steve Ballmer's college roommate. Is that correct? No, that's not right. All right, explain we, that because I didn't think the, that was. Right. We didn't really have any connection in school other than we were both on the Crimson, right? Uh, the the newspaper. Heard of that. Uh, and yes. and he was on the business board, and I was on editorial. And mm-hmm. of course, in those days, we looked down at people on the business board. Little right. did we so know. We knew him a little bit. Well, just. Just, just in passing. Right, right. But you weren't like best buddies. No. For some reason, that grew up around. I want to disabuse everyone <laughs> of that idea. Um, so, you, so we, what was your goal for Microsoft then? Because they were facing the the existential threat of Google essentially at the time. Well, that's right. At that time, I, I think the goal was could could we increase the the, the market share of Bing? Mm-hmm. We we did successfully, I think, increase it well into the twenties. Uh, but then then. Bomber actually, the, his emphasis shifted. He became said, "Look, let's let's focus more on phone." Mm-hmm. Uh, he's then shifted me to be head of all advertising. Actually, on the basis of that and a couple mm-hmm. of other other things, and then I I, I, I revamped the advertising there. But then uh, Satya came along as the next CEO and, and made me chief strategy officer, where my job was really to evaluate hundreds of possible directions for the company. Mm-hmm. And why did you want to stay in a tech role? Well, you know, I'd always had two interests. If you go back to technology and politics, yeah. frankly, I built computers before I did political campaigns. Right. And so uh, I was always equally fascinated. And I, I originally thought I would spend a few years before shifting to what I'm doing now, which is to really make the, right. really put together this combine of digital marketing companies and to make sure that I really understood what was happening in tech, in technology. But I enjoyed very much the time at Microsoft and to be a blue badge, so to speak. Yeah, blue badge. We're going to talk about that more when we get back, what he's do, what Mark's doing now with uh, Steve Ballmer, um, which is to reinvent digital marketing, correct? You buy up a bunch of companies. We'll talk about that in a second. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a minute with Mark Penn, the author of Microtrends Square. He's going to tell us what that means. Today's show is brought to you by HBO, and today in the red chair is Russ Hanneman. He's one of Silicon Valley's most notorious investors, and he's recently emerged as an aggressive player in the cryptocurrency market. Welcome to the podcast, Russ. Thank you, Kara, and you're welcome, by the way. Uh, For what exactly? What do you mean, for what? I I basically invented the podcast. (laughs) For what? You invented the podcast? I put radio on the internet. That sounds like a fucking podcast to me. Not that I'm making shit off it. That actually brings me to my first question. The standard internet funding and sales models have served you pretty well over the years, but now you're jumping feet first into ICOs. Why? Kara, this town is filled with assholes getting rich off crypto by doing jack. The Winklevoss twins put in some loose change five years ago. Now they're Bitcoin billionaires. So yeah, I'll buy a ticket for that fucking ride. 
You don't feel like you've already missed getting in on the ground floor? If I could change the past, I, I wouldn't have a kid at home right now snorting up my ADHD meds. I can only focus on the future. H-O-D-L, bitches. So I'm hearing you already have taken 36 companies to ICO. How have you fared so far? Well, you know, I'll be honest, Kara. It's been down, you know? It's been up. It's, it's been mostly down. You know, 35 of them have, you know, fucking tanked. 35 out of 36. What happened? I mean, this is, this is the game, all right? First, it's the SEC. Then it's one of your founders running away with your cash. Then it's a bunch of fucking hackers deciding that instead of edging in their basements that afternoon, they're going to come after your blockchain. Then one of your CEOs dies like a pussy. Anyway, listen, I'd rather focus on my successes. My success. One of them worked. And what was your ROI on the one that worked? Radio on internet? No, return on investment. Return on investment, yeah, I know. It's 300M, all right? That's a million. And it's on some thumb drive in the middle of a landfill. My boys are on it, though. You ever lose a drive with a ton of crypto on it? No, Russ, I haven't. Yeah, you have. Uh, no. But thanks for coming on the show, and good luck with that thumb drive. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. We're here with Mark Penn, the famous political strategist and also work, was an employee of Microsoft, apparently. <laughs> Blue badge employee of Microsoft. Um, he's also the author of Microtrends Squared, which is a, a sequel to his book. Talk about the book a little bit. Uh, so is it a sequel or what's the, what's the premise uh, of this one? Uh, ten years later. Let's, ten years later. Let's take, a look, let's take a look at what's going on. Right. So I think, I think people have moved from the Starbucks economy to the Uber economy. To explain that. Those companies, are, are political. Companies are. don't deliver just 155 choices. They deliver infinite choices. And mm -hmm. I think it's a world of infinite choice. Problem with that is that more choice has resulted in people making fewer choices. And, mm -hmm. and by that, I mean that think of America as a restaurant that just serves chicken and fish. Mm -hmm. Kind of boring choices. They're all right. Now let's add steak and sushi. Well, it turns out the steak eaters love steak so much they have it every day. The sushi eaters love the Toro so much they get into it and have it every day. So that they then become divided into these different communities. Now, substitute news for that same analogy. People watch MSNBC, watch it every day. People watch Fox every day. The fact that we've given consumers so much choice then in fact has encouraged this niching of society. And then for every trend, there's a counter trend and there's a war of trends. So the last election, Think of the last election as Silicon Valley voters against old economy voters, mm -hmm. right? Those people on the coast, <clears throat> those people with more education, very much into technology, including the technology companies themselves. Well, they'd been benefiting tremendously well in the last decade, but those people from Indiana to Pennsylvania hadn't been. They had lost nine or 10 million manufacturing jobs just in that period in, in that area. They had been uh, more or less overlooked uh, and, and really uh, had been left to languish. Well, they spoke up, you know, <clears throat> and they spoke up. And frankly, the last election was decided not by millennials, but by voters who were older. <laughs> it was decided not by Silicon Valley, but by old economy voters, mm -hmm. by exactly the opposite of the forces that were in power before. And that's very much the power of microtrends. Like these, <clears throat> these trends of several million people that shifted in nature and power really decided the, the election. And, for everybody. Uh, for everybody. And, you know, maybe we'll have a shift back. We probably, we probably will, if I were guessing. But, but the book covers a little bit about politics. I also talk about the couch potato voters. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk, uh, you know, a lot about, uh, uh, you know, I, I usually open the book with romance and dating. I mm -hmm. talk about graying bachelors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that, that 
guys in their 60s have never had it so good mm-hmm. uh, because there are so many uh, single uh, women for single men. I talk mm-hmm. about internet marrieds. Mm-hmm. Internet marrieds is just like that example I gave you about choice. I thought 10 years earlier, internet marrieds, which is now about 15% of all marriages, would result in in much more mixture of the classes. Mm-hmm. Instead, now people use it to find themselves. Right, right. And so, so more choices so what, keeps what, resulting so, in, in, in less, less choices. choices. So, what does that mean? A continued um, parting of the ways of the country? That there's so many choices that we sort ourselves perfectly? Well, it, it means we have to be we, we have to be worried about this. We have to take some some corrective action. We have to figure out how to mix it up a little bit more, mm-hmm. how to, in these algorithms, you know. And I do go on in the book uh, a lot about uh, uh, about the secrecy of algorithms being a real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've got to have even the algorithms, get, you know, we've got to put some sushi on the steak eater's plates every now and then, almost right. deliberately, because people lose track of what they might like because they stop trying it. And again, politics, consumer areas, social policy, this is having really unexpectedly profound and difficult impact. So what is that? What is the impact from your perspective? Well, the impact is that that not only are people pitted against each other, not only do people, you know, if you look at it, there's the same number of liberals and conservatives, but there's more very liberal and there's more very conservative. Mm -hmm. But then people don't see the other half of the world over the fence anymore, mm-hmm. right? Because they become so cocooned. And, and that, that really ex- accentuates the divisions of the country because they don't understand the people. Mm-hmm. Right in the other part, you know, in, in Washington D.C., where I live, the vote for Hillary was ninety-six to four. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for those folks to understand, you know, what happens that when you drive across America, ninety mm-hmm. percent of the territory you drive across will be Trump territory. So, what happens then in that in that scenario? Because then you have literally just it's just a hand-to-hand combat for whoever can get the most votes. Well, that's right, and, that, and that's why I say, look, we need a few changes. We we right now have ninety million people that don't that don't vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that means that some of the you know when I ran campaigns typically I would look to for swing voters. Mm-hmm. So I was famous for campaigns where Democrat would try to reach out to soft Republicans. Right. Now what's great about that is if you win, all those soft Republicans they support you because you've spent a year courting right. them, and that unifies the country. When you do campaigns now just to get what I call a slice of the potato of the 90 million who are sitting on the couch and energize them with the most divisive message possible is the day after the election, the country is no more unified than it was before the election. That is a destructive process, Mm -hmm. right? So we've noticed. So frankly, I say, look, we've got to have registration from birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got to have, you know, I I suggest ATM voting, right, is the Mm -hmm. most secure system. We have to keep the secret ballot. There's uh, closet conservatives. There are a lot more conservatives in the country now who are afraid to say Mm -hmm. what their real political views are. We've got to to overcome that and and make a kind of a freer atmosphere for people to express themselves. We have to get rid of caucuses that are undemocratic related to primaries. So, So I have like a whole series of remedies there and in the book. I also have a, a lot of concerns. You know, I talk about relationships with a bot, right? Mm-hmm. As if the, my biggest concern now is, you know, I ask people regularly, I say, is, is Alexa a he or she, mm-hmm. right? And, and of course, you would know that the right answer is it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and most people will say she. The other day I asked Alexa, are you a he or she? And Alexa said, I am in female character. Uh-huh, That's uh-huh. a slimy answer, uh-huh. <laughs> right? <laughs> Alexa accurate. didn't own up that I'm an it, right? right? right, right. I'm a collection of code. And right. by the way, 
what am I doing in your household? Right. Am I there to tell you the weather or am I there to sell you an umbrella? Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Am I there to sell you stuff? Am I a salesperson in oh, a closet oh. or am I actually there to benefit you? Well, because there's no disclosure of any of this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think we could have serious problems. And relationships with a bot can can take on a very personal nature that we're you know yeah. we're just getting into and could right. you know really harm people. Right, right. Well, that's a big topic, obviously. So when you when you're trying to get this idea of what when you're making prescriptions for what what should happen, you're sort of painting a really problematic future that's sort of like the present, where we're at Trumpville right now. Um, what do you imagine is going to happen? When we, we, it seems like we're there, what you're talking about. We're already living there. Well, I mean, I still remain largely optimistic that more people will be happier with the with their lives. Their, you know, <clears throat> when I look at the millennials and they have what I call the footloose and fancy free 10 or 15 years mm -hmm. on their own, or I look at the older voters, uh, we have a record number of nonagenarians, uh, mm -hmm. which, is, which is another microgrid. The overall view is people are enjoying life more. The, they are more divided, I think, politically on some of these things. They are more susceptible to some, some real, uh, I think, ethics issues with technology and mm -hmm. how it may uh, interfere with their life. And I think we have some problems in fixing the democratic system. But it is not a totally pessimistic view. Mm -hmm. And I think if you understand the present, if you understand exactly what you said, hey, this is the world today, mm -hmm. that really tells you the problems that we ought to be working on. And it also tells you like little things that we that we don't notice, like another chapter I have like on kids on meds, mm -hmm. right? The dramatic increase, the tripling of the of mm -hmm. putting, you know, young kids on medications. Yeah, I just which, did an interview with Maria Shriver about this. Right, and see, some people will say that's a good thing because it's mostly boys who can't make it through the classroom and mm -hmm. that this helps them get through it. But we don't know the long-term effects of this. We don't know if that leads to exacerbated opioid crisis. Part of microtrends is identifying things like this that, that we, we ought to change social policy on or have a better understanding of now before they come a, become a crisis 10 years from now. So in thinking about that, when you have this sort of dissipated populace and, and different thing, people going off in different directions, is it even possible anymore to bring them back together to a single trend or to... In, Talk with politics, because that's really where everything is happening right well, now. Well, that takes leadership that has as its goal to unify the country. Mm -hmm. I think when I was working for President Clinton, our consistent goal was to bring the country together. Yes. Uh, I, I don't think in the current administration that's the strategy. No, look, no. We, we believe that It would be you, quite the opposite. You, you, look, we believe very simply you had to have the support of more than a majority of the people on every day. Why? Mm -hmm. Because when you fall below that, it's to everyone's advantage to kick you. So mm -hmm. you fall into the 30s. Mm -hmm. And if you're above that, you can maintain the mantle of leadership to get done what you really think is important to get done. And, and I think that <clears throat> that right now, uh, you know, you, you really don't see that, that perspective in the White House, but I, I don't see that perspective in the Democratic Party either. Meaning? Meaning, meaning that it takes a leader. And, and Barack Obama, in many ways, personally, I think, was able to bring the country together. Uh, I, I think, interestingly, people did not support a lot of his policies, but they liked him and his mm -hmm. leadership style. Here you have people hate Trump's style, but you know, I, I have a, a, a new poll that I do every month mm -hmm. for the Harvard Center for American Political Studies and the Harris Poll, yeah, but they actually favor almost all his policies. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but 
Uh, but but a good number of them, you'd be surprised, exactly the opposite of, of what we had with Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. So, so, what do you so we need somebody happening? with both. What, I mean, what do we imagine happening in the next election? Then? It, well, but somebody's typically at this point, we didn't we didn't know Jimmy Carter, we didn't mm-hmm. know Michael Dukakis, we didn't know Barack Obama, we didn't mm-hmm. we we actually didn't know the leader that that was going to emerge. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, Trump's leadership style, I think I don't think it's changing, mm-hmm. right? And the question is going to no, be no, he's doubling down. Well. He, Right, he's the. Will the Democrats come forward with someone who, who is in many ways, way out of the mainstream and believes in the same kind of divisive politics? In which case, Democrats have a very high likelihood of losing. Mm-hmm. Or will they come up with somebody who's looking to unify the country, who can reach back over to the working class voters that that Trump was able to appeal them, bring them back to the Democratic. Uh, fold, and I think that kind of nominee will win a resounding victory. Mm-hmm. And do you imagine that happening? I, I do. I mean, I, I do. I don't think it's. <clears throat> again, I, I, I in the book in Microtrend Square, I call for reform of the, of the process because uh, these caucuses tend to give, I think, uh, you know, more divisive activism. Mm-hmm. A, a bigger role than than they should have in the part in picking so the party. The point nominees. you're making is you can't out Trump Trump really. No, I, I think if you out Trump Trump, you may or may not win, but you you have the real risk of that, later uh, the next morning. Uh, right, <laughs> he'll get 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 reelected. I think that you know, and I see Biden so far doing probably the best job reaching out uh, to those working class voters. I think somebody who really can reach across. Uh, and, and understand the cross currents that 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 really we have in America right now, we'll we we'll, could really win and bring the country together. What do the effect of the changing demographics have? Because ultimately, that's where it goes. It's it's such a diverse populace, a voting populace, maybe not fully voting. Well, but you see, the the big the biggest change is actually, uh, and another thing I warn about the in in Microtrend Squared is that uh, the first thing people get rid of when they get more money is kids, mm-hmm. and that in fact we're we're among many societies that are having fewer kids. So, so right now the over sixty fives are are about equal size to the eighteen to twenty nine. Now, when John F. Kennedy was elected, eighteen twenty nine was twice as big. Mm-hmm. So to understand, to really understand the demographics of America, yeah, has there been an increase in diversity? Yes, African Americans are about twelve percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a huge increase in the Latino vote. Uh, you know, that could be eight or nine percent uh, in in the next election. But <laughs> generationally, the tilt is to older voters who reasserted, hey, values of country, family, religion uh, have been left out, the kinds of values I believe in. I felt mm-hmm. that they feel the country moved too far. And they reasserted their own authority. That actually is a very big issue. I think right now there's a huge gender gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I had this, uh, you know, in this poll, in this poll I did after the Stormy Daniels mm-hmm. uh, interview, men actually went up for Trump and, oh. and women went down. Huh. So, why was that? <laughs> I, I, you know, so I can only speculate as to why that is, because yeah. I, did, I didn't really. But 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 the truth is that it accentuated the the gender gap, and women really feel very very alienated from this from this administration. But think? men do not. Huh. And well, why would they? Certain kind of men. Certain kind of men. Uh, well, a lot of men, a lot yeah. of young men. Surprisingly, yeah. a lot of the the youth, uh, young male vote uh, is uh, mm-hmm. is is very pro-Trump, which just goes to my point that that it was a mistake to ignore the power of 
Trump's movement and to understand that, that Democrats will need an equally powerful movement to win. So and where not are you, where Seth Trump right now in the midst of his daily, whatever daily tantrum is happening? Well, you know, look, he's at 44% job approval, which would be actually slightly higher than Barack Obama's mm -hmm. job approval. You know, I think he's going to face a defeat in the, in the House, you know, most likely, but but not in the Senate. Uh, you know, both times, both both Clinton and Obama lost considerably in the midterm, so it's not a surprise. Mm -hmm. And and I don't I don't think that unless the president changes fundamentally his leadership style, that that he is going to be able to cement the kind of majority against a good Democratic candidate who mm -hmm. who is reaching out to those voters. Mm -hmm. And do you imagine? Are when you you know you're in Washington? I was just there this weekend. Everyone's sort of obsessed with the Comey, the, all the the noise of a lot of different investigations. Does that you were in the midst of one? Obviously, does uh, yeah. it matter? Yeah. I, look, I spent a year. Uh, fighting the Ken Starr investigations. Uh, I believe that the independent counsel was wrong to have extended the mm -hmm. uh, his investigations. Uh, I, I think President Clinton uh, w was guilty of trying to cover up uh, uh, the personal relationship he was having, but that that didn't rise to an impeachable offense or a crime. And I think the current investigations are wrong, too. I, I'm spoken out very strongly that... Uh, yeah, you have. <laughs> I don't agree with the direction of these investigations. They, they, the, uh, you know, the law enforcement in the country has to be above reproach, right, when it, when it investigates a president. It can't give the appearance of partisanship. And boy, at this point, you know, the FBI and the CIA people who are basically just permanent talking heads, mm -hmm. the idea that the head of the FBI is now going, <laughs> that former head of the FBI is now going to make millions of dollars selling a book, blasting in all sorts of political terms, president and how people should vote, says, was he ever really an impartial administrator of justice? He does more damage to those institutions that have to be nonpartisan. Look, we have institutions that are partisan. That's called Congress. Mm -hmm. That's called the presidency. We have to have other institutions that are nonpartisan. And if everything gets politicized, all we do is well, fight. Trump we'll does never have make some progress. responsibility here, correct? Well, everybody has responsibility. But, mm -hmm. uh, but the question is, defeating Trump at the polls, mm -hmm. I think, is the right thing to do. Yeah. Trying to bring in all these investigations, I think, was wrong when the Republicans tried it against Clinton. I think it's wrong to see what's going on here. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about what you're doing around digital marketing, because you've been busy buying up uh, companies. And, and I want to understand where you think that's going. And also, I'd love to talk a little bit about Facebook, and, and, and uh, which is part of digital, uh, part of marketing and privacy and where it's going from there. We're here with Mark Penn, the famous political strategist and also the author of Microtrend Square, which is a sequel to his first book. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are already using it to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provides access to weather data and analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and to reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? I talked to Josh Topolsky, who, among other things, is the CEO of The Outline. He's someone you used to write about back when he was at Vox and you were not at Vox. He's doing a cool and sort of uh, counterintuitive media company right now called The Outline. 
He's got really interesting thoughts about Vox and the media and Michael Bloomberg, what it's like to fight with Mike Bloomberg in Mike Bloomberg's office and then get fired. It's a good conversation. You will enjoy listening to it. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're here with Mark Penn. We're talking about a range of things, including um, his dislike of the special counsel. But I don't know where that's going. We'll see. We'll see. What I could, like. I dislike them all. What could go wrong? I, I, someone I, I, investigating I, a real estate guy from New York. What could they find? What, I'm a universal disliker of special yeah, counsel. Yeah. So. All right. Um, so, Mark, you. So after after the Clinton election, you went to Microsoft, and then you broke off, and you started buying. What are, you, what, were you, what are you doing? Explain. Well, let's see. So I had had experience originally in polling. Right. Then I was head of one of the larger public relations firms, right. Bursted Marsteller. And then I uh, had techie. one of the I was techie. had one of the larger advertising budgets, two billion dollars yeah. at at Microsoft. And I said, well, what's the best use of what I could do now? So I said, well, look, marketing is changing. It's undergoing a, a disruption. You look at the expenditures of marketing. Television expenditures are just topping. You know, growth has slowed to almost zero. Magazines negative. Negative. Radio negative. Uh, billboards actually, because of digital billboards, slightly up. But search marketing up 15 to 20 percent a year. Social marketing, primarily Facebook, up almost 40 percent a year. Mm-hmm. Video uh, advertising up 26 percent a year. And and look at more advertising done on the internet than on television just about now as we cross that and then more on mobile. So given those trends, I said, well, look, I have an opportunity now to create what is structured as a fund could also be seen as a, as a collection of companies that can, that can work together that takes advantage of these trends, that I don't have to have a, you know, some big YNR firm with mm-hmm. 3,000 people who, who made 30-second advertisements. I can go right to the heart of performance marketing, you know, building complex, uh, you know, content management systems, mm-hmm. uh, the things that kind of combine numbers, strategy, technology, and engineers into the kind of the, the new methods of marketing and that nobody was really putting together a, yeah. a group at and scale. And you bought some traditional ones. You bought some pretty normal. Well, I, I started, uh, you know, I did do the first acquisition. Well, first Steve said he, uh, he really liked working with me and became the core investor with me mm-hmm. uh, in the fund. And then I started in politics with, uh, with SKD Nickerparker, a group that I'd worked with for many years and that I knew well and was tremendously, uh, you know, strong group. A little less <laughs> digital, but yes, they're, but they're digital. becoming a yeah. lot more. They have yeah. a, a digital department now. And, and actually now we have a Republican group, Targeted Victory, mm-hmm. that does, uh, does, I say, everybody but Trump because uh, mm-hmm. they, they do a lot of work for Romney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and primarily they're in digital fundraising. But still, I think political firms by nature are nimble, mm-hmm. they're current, they're responsive compared to the hugely bureaucratic marketing firms that people are finding quite inefficient. So what's changed about marketing? And then I want to get into the what the power of Facebook, Google, YouTube. And- well, <clears throat> uh, TV came before TV advertising. So mm-hmm. So advertising is typically a function of where people spend their time. Mm-hmm. And, and so people have moved their time from TV to being online. Facebook is, is probably 40% of, 
of browser or you know our browser time uh, that, that people spend. I think uh, Google is slightly different. It's, it's not about the time that people no, it's spend, utility. right? It's that people are searching for the product, and mm -hmm. therefore it's a great it's a great time to hit them hit them with an ad. And so as as those things become more and more important in people's daily life, and as as frankly the ability then as people watch more and more video, right? And some of it's just going to be ad supported as opposed to mm -hmm. subscription supported. So marketing has to move, right? It has no choice. And at the same time, there's now a data set on people that, that we never had before. As I always explain, and I explain in Microtrend Squared, imagine two companies. One company that really understands its customers and has data to target and retarget them, and another that has a bunch of stores but doesn't really maintain much of a profile of their customers. That second company is going to go out of business. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the first company is going to have more efficient marketing. They're going to be able to market a better yield out of their consumer database for less money. They will dominate the market place. And so you have no choice if you're a company but to embark upon that process and to go from traditional brand marketing and advertising that was built around having a huge Olympics campaign mm -hmm. to really understanding your customers or potential customers, how you can target them online and how you can be very effective in messaging to them. And that's what all these companies are about. So that's what ends these big, massive marketing campaigns at, say, an Olympics or a, or a mass event. So you're talking about micro marketing, essentially. Well, that, that's right. Well, which isn't I don't new, think which it's going to end There's it. lots of companies that have been trying to do this. Right, but, but you see, the dollars weren't there before. Right. So, like, even, even just five years ago or four years ago when I was doing the Microsoft, we would do the TV ad first. Yeah. Right? We, we, the feel-good surface. Oh. Here's the surface. Let's dance a little bit. <laughs> right. And then, we, okay, yeah, give some money to the digital folks and let them, you know, right. most of the digital ads would be like, you know, get and, Office 365. Right. right. They didn't have content, drawing power. That, that's actually where the Scroogle campaign was so so different in mm -hmm. having edge to it, mm -hmm. right? And to have the same kind of creative energy right. put into those marketing campaigns. No, there have been afterthoughts in most right. in most big companies, right. and and now they realize. Look, they, they remember they're also going to you know many of the companies now for the first time have to be DTC or direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. So they did, they they had outsourced all of these things to the retail channels. Right. Now that people are buying online, see the other big trend that supports this is the percentage of online shopping. Right. For every dollar of online shopping, that's 15 cents of online marketing. Mm -hmm. So that's why I identified that as growth area. I identified it that people weren't putting together that many companies of scale. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to be a tech company. We're trying to be a group of service companies that, that has technology infused into it to mm -hmm. provide So give really me an good example work. of that. Because when you're talking <clears> about <throat> online marketing, what does Amazon need you? What does Google need you? What does Facebook need you? Well, but the customer- Who needs you? Right, the, so- P&G. So uh, Amazon is, in fact, a, a client of one of the mm -hmm. companies. But but if you would take a, a Nike or you take a, or you take a, a, a P&G or, uh, you know, so there, there are several ways to do it. First, more and more people need efficient, uh, sites that can handle complex transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, that can be financial transactions. Right now, some of our biggest customers in the content management system uh, division really are 
you know, large banks because mm -hmm. they understand that their consumer relationship now is driven by, by being able to do things that you never thought could be done online, mm -hmm. online simply, efficiently, and quickly. And then I've really invested in the performance marketing space. Mm -hmm. You know, here's money, <laughs> you know, whether it's Google or, you know, take all the digital ads and get me ROI. I mean, I believe in that because more and more advertising moves from brand to direct consumer results. Right. At, at the same time, I think it requires kind of knowledge and expertise in the various, you know, retail and e-commerce areas to, to be really effective. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's where we, we put a lot of us. We do a little bit in, in specialized healthcare, which mm -hmm. I think also in, you know, we have a, a rare disease uh, drug marketing company that, that really has to find the patients and the doctors and, and the communities, mm -hmm. right, who are really affected by, by these diseases. And sometimes they have to push for the kind of approvals that they might not get to make the, to make the drugs available. Uh, so, so I've been, you know, influencer marketing is also, I think, growing significantly, and we've invested in, in, in that area as well. That would be Instagram, so that kind of uh, stuff. Uh, yes. So, but it's also people who, who have followers, mm -hmm. you know, again, both, both in microtrends, the ability now to have a virtual business, you know, 90% mm -hmm. of the people fail, but a good number of people can get a little side income out mm -hmm. of their... Out of, a lot of people just get it out of their pet instead of mm -hmm. them, themselves. Yeah. But but once they have enough followers and they can really, you know, fairly with proper disclosure or endorse products and so forth. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of followers. I don't do that. Uh, it's pretty powerful. I don't right? care. <laughs> I got enough money. Uh, well, that's good. But other people like, yeah. are picking. You know, it's, and it's very effective. Look, if you if you. Uh, uh, if, if you were to endorse endorse the product, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of people, I think it's a new way to make a living, right? Uh, you know, off of the virtual economy. Uh, and I think that um, as you complete the marketing wheel, I think I think political I is extremely important. We we invested a little less in straight public relations because we think that's where it's going. We just acquired something called Reputation Defender. Mm -hmm. I know that. <laughs> so uh, so that that really closed just just a few days and ago. And that's to and and that to monitor helps monitor how right, you're looking. That monitor how you're looking. Uh, it has some privacy. Uh, re related products as mm -hmm. well, you know, to, to find whether your personal information is spread around the internet, and, right. and also to say, look, are you being are you being smeared and uh, or not, and you know, and I think that's that to me was a fascinating corollary to a lot of the stuff we so, were doing. So, Mark, finishing up, I want to talk about data because that's all of this requires enormous amounts of data and computing power to understand. You can't just this isn't a hand. This isn't a person and like a bunch of young kids you're having doing this kind of stuff. Um, this all has to do with technology, how to how to manage it and how to interpret it, interpret the technology. Obviously, last week we had a big hearing with Facebook on the Hill. I'd just love to get your thoughts on that. Um, and then what happens next with data privacy? Because this is at the heart of your business, the idea of having this amount of data. Yes. Well, I always say that the, the cost of data is going to zero and the value of analysis to infinity, meaning mm -hmm. that simple problems get handled and more uh, uh, more difficult problems are the ones that are remaining. Look, I, I think that, that Facebook uh, has a business model that, that is about taking people's personal information and targeting advertisements. Yeah. Their platform used to be more open 
to third parties. And in fact, their closing it is, is to their advantage. It's actually not helpful to the competition. So mm -hmm. what happened here with Cambridge Analytica got blown up because it was, it was related to politics, uh, even though it's similar to what they do themselves internally. Sure they do. Right? Oh, by the way, Mark, we don't sell data. Yes. <laughs> you just hoard it relentlessly. We don't sell data, yes, because we, we don't sell data because we, because we license the value of yes, that piece of, of data hundreds yes, of times. I noticed. Right? I, could, I didn't get tricked by that, even right? though so, most of the senators did. Uh, and so, look, at, at, at the end of the day, I am for more and more disclosure, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, see, when you go back to the school campaign, you can't compete on privacy if people don't know the difference. Uh, my attitude is if people make a, a knowing choice, hey— this is the way they handle my data. I get the benefit of the service. I'm cool with that. I think I think offering a paid alternative is also, I, I think, a good idea. I don't think that'd be done by regulation, mm -hmm. but I think more and more companies should 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 do that. Uh, and and I think that uh, that when when you look at it, I'm a little even more concerned about these these algorithms where people don't know how pages are being biased or why things are appearing mm -hmm. where they are, and that we've got to have more more disclosure. Do you see that, that happening after these hearings? No. <laughs> no, I don't either. No, because look, the, the questioning from the senators was about terms was embarrassing. Of service. Was about embarrassing. Terms of service. No, it, 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 because they they generally the, the questions had clearly been written by staff members. They didn't even know what the questions were, so they couldn't intelligently mm -hmm. follow up. How much? Are you worth to Facebook, right? right? You're probably worth about 100 bucks a year. Do mm -hmm. you have that idea? No, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Is your exchange of about $100 worth of, of advertisements sold basis on, on your data? Is that a fair exchange for the service you get? Mm -hmm. Somebody else could be worth two or 300. People have no real concept of what the economics here and, and what they're giving and what their choices might be if either they paid or if someone were to come in with a competitive service. You see, right. when terms are not really known, someone can come in and say, you know what, I'm going to give you a better deal. Right. Why don't I give you, I'll split the revenue with you. Right. Right. Eventually, I think we will get, someone will come up with a business model where people will, will be able to get some royalty for their own data. Mm -hmm. And that will revolutionize these services. So so what do you think is going to happen from last week, given you're in the data? Um, I have thought there should be a new privacy bill for, forever. <laughs> there hasn't <laughs> so, been one so There hasn't been one since really, I think. Ever. I think it goes back to during when, when I was working with Clinton. I think yeah. we had a privacy bill around then. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's, it's time to have, you know, better standards on the privacy, more fines, you know, for when, when privacy's uh, violated. I think, I think phony accounts, I think, is a problem that people should pay a pretty high fine for because nobody should really be sanctioning uh, the, these phony accounts. And so I'd like to see that come out of there as a minimum. Uh, I don't think, by the way, driverless cars are, 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 are something we're going to see for like 20 years or more. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for some reason... Uh, technologists think that that they can accomplish more than I believe is is mm -hmm. really possible. But I do think that more and more AI is going to be, you know, in our lives, and that we need disclosure. Is it an it? Mm -hmm. What is its purpose? What is it doing there? And uh, oh, by the way, the driver of this car, if it's going to choose between killing me or killing a pedestrian, I would like to know what the choice is going to be, even right. even if I don't have any impact. Right. So, so it. do you imagine this was a moment for Silicon Valley? This idea that tech is not so benign that it needs to be more responsible. Do you think it's going to? Yeah, because I just I had interviewed uh, 
Tim Cook last week, and he sort of just was very basic in that we need to have more disclosure. That's all he said. And the reaction was, how dare he say such a thing? It was fascinating for me to watch. Well, I think he's taken some actually very strong uh, stands no, on privacy, but that's because his business model is selling devices. That's all right. It's Maybe not he's selling just data, right, too. Maybe right? he's just also right. Besides, I get that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It was interesting. So that's what you, you got know, from Facebook. Well, he but, sells that. I'm like, well, But it is a moment because until now, mm-hmm. the viewpoint had been technology is the engine for our economy, therefore hands-off is the best policy. I think people have said, wow, okay, technology has now reached a size and a point at which maybe we can put a few hands on it. Maybe we're going to tax it, you know, uh, normally. Maybe we're going to give it the kind of regulations, not that a bank would have, but that anybody, any merchant, you know, with a store would have. I think you're going to see a more normalcy kind of return to technology. And at first people are so in technology are so used to having complete freedom yeah. that they're that they're they're gonna bitch and moan about it. But but I do think that's coming. I think it's unstoppable. I, I don't know, you know, it's it's gonna take a leader who knows something about this though to really get mm-hmm. stuff done. Who would that be? <laughs> and that's nobody I've seen lately. No neither. Right? Maybe I mean Europe, I'm just like Margaret Margaret Bester right? seems it, it to could, drive it, them crazy. Look, it could be Europe, but I, I, I have to believe that there'll be a new generation of political figures who've been who brought up on technology who know that it's incredible strengths and its weaknesses and mm-hmm. can strike the right balance here before some really bad stuff happens. Right. And if you had to to sort of rank the companies you think are the most important now in the in this area impact on politics, impact on marketing, would Facebook still be at the top? Well, Amazon is at the top because Amazon has such an impact on retailing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazon doesn't, you know, I, I think one of the things is that the tech companies have sorted themselves out uh, mm-hmm. into their various areas and not competed as much against no, each other. No, they don't. That's what's what, that was to me the most fascinating question from to Mark is he's like, are you a monopolist? And I was thinking, and I think it was Hatch that said, oh, I remember the old thing. And I said, no, no, it's not even that. There's six powerful companies, not five, not one. And they all are really scary powerful in their area. Well, but that's right. They have their lanes. And right. I think everyone decided, you know what? Hey, I could really go all out and compete against, uh, I could really go all out and compete against Google, but that'll probably cost me 10 or $15 billion. So I'll go over here into commerce. And so, yeah, so, so I'll go over here. There's sort of, they have a couple things that overlap. But well, there's, that's right. Because I always say there's Google, there's a Google or Amazon tax on virtually every uh, e-commerce purchase because you're going to go through one of those two doorways mm-hmm. and somebody's going to be paying money for you going through those doorways. Right. And I don't think most people even even realize that, but I think Amazon, Google, you know, Facebook, Microsoft has an incredible marketplace in in the in in office and mm-hmm. and in terms of the workplace. No right. one has really nope. come into the right. to the modern workplace, and that's why Microsoft. Uh, you know, one of the I won't say which CEO of technology when I went to Microsoft. Uh, the person said to me, five years from now, there'll be no Microsoft. And mm-hmm. I just laughed. Yeah. And five years ago, there is a very strong Microsoft yeah. uh, in the cloud Microsoft and office. For sure. Exactly. Um, any predictions for uh, politics? Any name you want to name in the Democrats? Uh, no, I, I just, I, I've observed that uh, the most interesting trend is that, that all of the people running for, uh, run, potentially running for president all had about 10 or 15 that now Biden has come up to 26 that's mm-hmm. not enough to, you know, you got to be in the 40s to be, have mm-hmm. a real advantage going in. I, I think Michelle Obama, if she ran, w- would be a very, very formidable 
uh, candidate, yeah. uh, and and that that matchup would be, uh, you know, oh, I, man. I can't, yeah, <laughs> talk what? about a, an Tough, all that long, creepy old man. That'd be fantastic. You know, and I I I, I don't think that you know the kind of Sanders Warren wing oh, of the Democratic yeah. Party will be successful or would be good candidates. I think that they they run a, a risk of, uh, of I'm having, with you on that one. having Trump reelected. And I think I think more Democrats, you know, see that as the as the case. As I say, look, mostly I want to restore confidence in our democracy. I don't think that the, you know, a hundred thousand dollars of Russian ads up against four nights of televised conventions billions of dollars of ads, mm -hmm. you know, really affected. I, I think this race did play itself out as I go through in Microtrend Squared through the contours of the shifting power of different groups, whether it's old economy versus older who are upset at each other. Yeah. I think when Hillary Clinton said, oh, I got the vote from uh, counties with two thirds of the GDP, she was exactly right. Those counties that were half the country with a third of the GDP said, you know what, I'm not getting my fair share. Yeah. And there were very real reasons. I went into this whole political game because I read a book uh, at college called The Responsible Electorate. And it said, the simple thesis of this book is that the voters are not fools. Mm -hmm. And I think <clears throat> that the more we believe that the voters are fools, and actually, I think our elites have become, I, I have a chapter in Microtrends, impression elites have become more the fools. The more we think our democracy doesn't work, that it's all about some kind of voodoo targeting instead of real issues, the, the more, we, the more we, we discredit our own democracy and don't realize the power of ideas in this country is enormous, the power to communicate them effectively is incredible and unparalleled, and that we should respect you know, whoever, whoever wins at least as the winner and defeat them next time with a better message, with a better candidate, with a better idea. I think that is the notion. And if we get away from that, we're just going to have a divided society that accepts nothing is legitimate. And yeah. then we will, that is the wrong rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. So we'll have to kill Twitter, you and me. <laughs> Got to kill it. Got to take it down. <laughs> take it down. I love the Twitter. <laughs> it's real bad. It's real. It's the it, heroine it, of our media age, I think. Uh, it, it is. Never did I think that any, that, that just, I don't know what the next president is really going to do about that because Nothing, I don't I think president, no, I don't think presidents can go back. Look, any, I used to write, I used to go we'll through every single word that moved through the White House, right? And yeah. it's just like nothing in this Trump administration is anything remotely like I think what I was I think he's to. just one of these comets that's just going to, he's, I call them, the, the, he was he's the genius of Twitter. Yes, but, but, but presidents in the future are going to have to make more authentic, yes. direct yeah, but I, uh, there's expression nobody, there's, of what they're thinking. There's few people as good. I haven't seen anybody. I'm trying to think of one politician's as good as him. And I hate complimenting him, as you might imagine, but uh, he's good. I say, he's, you look, you got to realize he didn't just have a show on TV. Actually, Comey's not bad. Show. Comey's not bad. Uh, he's super self-righteous, but it works. Yes, it I, works. I, I, it I, works. Think, I think people are going to get pretty tired of Comey pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just trying to think of who's good. Oh, Kim Kardashian, I'm trying to think who's quite good. Uh, of the Democrats, none of them really. Not yet. Uh, no, but you don't want them to be, you know, <laughs> you don't want them to be good in that same sense. Yeah. But you, you want them, you, you, you uh, my point is we're just not going to go back to no. the formal. No, we're not. You know, the 100% formal communication, at least 20% of presidential communication now, it's going to have to be, be more VR. top of Mark's mind. It's going to be VR. They're going to uh, 
Yeah, we're I not think, even I think there's another that. industry that's <laughs> yeah, going to be. Yeah, we'll talk about that. that next time. Anyway, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, and read his book, Microtrends Squared, which is an update of his original book. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit recode.net slash podcast for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews just like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech and the week's news. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new-collar jobs will be created by 2024. To help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and an associate's degree. 90 P-TECH schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash P-TECH.